How can you trick your chief financial officer into reallocating capital? What did Ralph Waldo Emerson know about journaling that you should too? And how can you ensure you will create positive memories for grandchildren one day that they will always remember? Have you written a letter to yourself recently? Or ever? And the list goes on. These are not really investment lessons this week. These run deeper. They're they're life lessons, but often they're simple, humble. They're they're hacks. Mental tips, tricks, and life hacks, volume eight, this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you joining with me this week. We're gonna we're gonna have some fun together. Let's get smarter, shall we? It's the latest, it's number eight in our historical running series of mental tips, tricks, and life hacks. The series started with volume one on June 15th of 2016. Now back then, 2016, it was just mental tips and tricks. But then I thought when I did episode two, hey. It's not just about mental tips and tricks. I mean, those are great, but what about life hacks? We all need those too, ways to do life better, more elegantly, ways to make things that used to be kludgy effective. That's how I think about life hacks anyway, and I also love mental tips and tricks, which we've now done seven times before. The most recent was last November, November 2022. If you want to hear earlier episodes of this series, including that one, you can certainly always just Google Rule Breaker Investing Mental Tips. In fact, as you start typing that into Google, it starts suggesting things like mental health tips and other things. I don't know if I provide that, but Google's suggesting that in the autofill as you type in Rule Breaker Investing Mental Tips. But I can assure you that will get you to past episodes in this series. You'll find all previous ones, which might be worthwhile since there are no repeats. Every one of these episodes is chock full of new, original, well, at least this show, mental tips, tricks, and life hacks. Now, are these these earth-shattering, life-improving, unforgettable tips? Absolutely not. I mean, maybe, but no, these these are hacks, a lot of life hacks. This series is designed to make life more elegant, fun, and navigable. I'm coaching you very explicitly here, and like any good life coach might do, aiming most of all for your success. So these are things that have worked for me and sometimes for listeners who've written in have worked for them that we hope work for you too. They can be quite small, by the way. For instance, last year, November 2nd, 2022, number four was a a trick and I shared with you how I use the Kindle app since I love eBooks. Maybe you do too. And I highlight with all four colors because the app lets you highlight not just with the traditional yellow highlighter, but with a blue, a pink, and an orange. And I described how I use all four of those and meaningfully, therefore, can filter books that I've previously read down to just a single thing I'm looking for. For example, I use pink to be the critically most important passages of a book, whether it's a novel or nonfiction, whatever strikes me as the most important takeaways, I always highlight in pink. And then if you do that along with me, you can then just filter for your pink highlights and quickly review the big takeaway points you found in any past book. Now, I said this, the series is not necessarily 
earth-shattering or unforgettable, but it is life-improving. And I'm happy to say after I did that podcast, I got an email from a listener who said, hey, I hear you on the highlights on the eBooks. Have you ever heard about Readwise? Well, I've subsequently talked about Readwise on this podcast in the past, but if you still haven't heard of Readwise before and you're an eBook person like me, you should know that you can now upload all of your highlighted passages from all of your eBook reading, whether it's Amazon Kindle or maybe Apple Books or other platforms where you've done reading and highlighting, you can upload them all into Readwise and get a morning missive every day, and a morning email flashing back five past quotes from your reading. And I have found this incredibly effective at helping me remember what I've read in the past, representing me great points I'd completely forgotten about, or a wonderful line or quote that I could use in next week's podcast or next month's keynote. So I am a huge Readwise fan, and I have Kara Chambers, who's the one who sent me that email, to thank, because this podcast, Mental Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks, enabled me to share it out, the idea of multicolor highlighting in Kindle, and I got back a great gift. Kara, who also is a Motley Fool employee and has appeared many times on this podcast, helping talk about company cultures. So Kara, thank you. That's a fun recent moment. Uh, one of the fruits born of this particular episodic series. Well, we're about to present number one, and in fact, we have seven. I see one, two, three. I see four tricks and three life hacks this time. But before we go there, I want to give two quick plugs. The first is that I was on someone else's podcast in the past week, and that is former Motley Fool employee, longtime friend Aaron Bush, at Aaron underscore Bush underscore on Twitter. Aaron, with his Novik startup, which focuses on the gaming industry, has his Novik, that's spelled N-A-A-V-I-K. With his Novik podcast, he interviews people who love games or are interested in the business of games. I am one of them. And the way that Aaron promoted this this week, he said, David is not just a market-crushing investor, but he's also successfully embedded game design into his life and business. And I, I would say for about an hour, we go pretty deep. So if that topic sounds interesting to you, I hope you will check out Aaron Bush's interview with me in the past week on Twitter. That's at N-A-A-V-I-K at Novik underscore co. Of course, you could just Google Novik on Spotify or Apple and find the podcast that way. I had such fun with Aaron this past week. So that was the past. Let's talk briefly about the future. A little bit later this month, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dan Pink. Now, Dan has appeared on this podcast a number of times. Daniel Pink, of course, the many times New York bestselling author, focused on so many great nonfiction works, often about human flourishing uh, and the human brain and living life better. Talk about a life hack author and friend of the fool over the years. Well, I get to interview Dan Pink for the Motley Fool Foundation. We have a monthly virtual event. It's Spark Conversations. And in July, on July 20th at 1 p.m., I have the honor of speaking to Dan Pink as my guest there. So head on over to foolfoundation.org. That is, of course, the Fool Foundation's website. Scroll down about halfway down that main page. You'll see a link to register for that. Dan Pink, in conversation with yours truly, again, 1 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, July 20th. Our topic, Mindset Shift for Positive change. We call it the Sparks series, where we try to throw off sparks, spark new thoughts, 
spark an interest in creating more financial freedom in the world at large. Anybody who listened to last week's podcast has heard quite a lot about financial freedom this month. You're going to hear even more and possibly hear it even better from the very talented Dan Pink. So Dan and I hope you will join us for that Fool Foundation Spark Series virtual event. All right, here we go. It's mental tip trick or life hack number one. And number one is a trick. And I'm just going to call this reallocate. I did mention at the top, I was trying to be enticing when I said, how can you trick your chief financial officer into reallocating capital? Well, I want to share a trick I watched live in a board meeting a few years ago. In fact, it was five years ago. I even noted the date and time. It was October 29th of 2018 at 11.15 a.m. I'm going to say a little bit more about that a little later. But anyway, at that exact date and time, I watched this happen. I watched one of my fellow board members turn to the leadership team and chief financial officer, and he said, now, if you had to cut $100,000, let's just say we had to cut back here. If you had to cut $100,000, where would you go first? Which is a great question. Any of us can ask ourselves that. We can tone down the numbers and say $100. If you had to cut $100, if you had to save $100 in the next month, dear listener, where would you go first? But for this organization, 100000 was about the right question. If you had to cut that, he said, where would you go first? And the team thought about it, and then they gave an answer. And he, he nodded. He took that in. He received that, heard it, nodded. And then he turned to his next question. He said, now, conversely, if you had an extra $100,000, where would you put that right now? And that same talented team scratched their heads, talked about it for a while, and thought about, you know, Where's the real growth capital? Well, if we were taking in venture capital, $100,000 we didn't have before, where would we put it? Some exciting new area of growth. And they gave a good answer. And I don't think he was intending to set them up, and I don't think they felt set up. But after hearing, A, if you had to cut $100,000, where would it go? And B, if you had an extra $100,000, where would you put it? He simply said, C, great. I suggest we cut $100,000 along the lines you all just suggested and put that $100,000 into the place you just told me it should go. And I thought that was a masterclass in good advice from a board member helping a team reallocate, helping the chief financial officer reallocate capital. So I'm putting that one out number one this week as a trick anybody can use. You can change the amounts. You can change the context. It can work for any organization. It can work for any friend. Any individual, you can use it yourself. If you had to cut blank, where would you go first? Great. By the way, if you had an extra blank, where would you put it? Okay. Do it. Now, I've been a little bit coy not mentioning who that person was, but I want you to know he's one of my authors in August this coming month. So, Sonny Vanderbeck, whom I just shared a little bit of his wisdom and quoted, Sonny Vanderbeck wrote an excellent book a few years ago called Selling without selling out. In this case, he's not talking about selling as in being in sales. He's talking about selling your company. Now, a lot of my listeners are business people, and a lot of us, we over-index at The Motley Fool to small businesses, family businesses. And for a lot of you listening to me right now, if you don't already have one, you might dream of starting one. But at some point years later, you might want to sell it. By the way, I'm not in any way projecting. I I personally hope that I'll hold my company to death and pass it on to the next generation. But a lot of people do, especially serial entrepreneurs, they they sell. They they start something to sell it and then they want to start something else. That's not me. 
but that might be you. But whether you're talking about something you started or grandparents started three generations ago, a lot of us eventually may be in a position of needing to sell or wanting to sell our business and to do it well. And that's exactly what Sonny Vanderbeck, an expert on the subject, will be talking about in August. So there we go. I've now plugged two of our authors in August, Arthur Brooks, his wonderful book, Love Your Enemies, and Sonny Vanderbeck, his wonderful book, Selling Without Selling Out, two of my four authors in August next month. I'm mentioning it to you now still in early July, still the first half of July, so you'll have a chance to read these excellent books before we talk about them next month. Okay, there was mental tip, trick, or life hack number one, reallocate. All right, let's go to number two. This one's a life hack, and this one speaks back to the last episode in this series because number five that I presented last November was journaling in support of journaling, specifically in areas of personal growth. A lot of us may not journal on a regular basis, and I'm raising my hand too. I'm not somebody who does that, but in part, I think it's because we think we need to be really regular about it or very intense about it. Anyway, Mike McCann, this was a listener submission last November, talked about the merits of journaling. And if you're thinking about that, I highly recommend that point from last November. This one speaks back to it. This one keys into it with a slightly different angle. So number two is a life hack. Let's call it micro journaling. In his excellent book, Essentialism, author Greg McCune says the following, and I quote, and I think this is such an enabler for you and for me. If we're thinking about keeping a diary, keeping a journal, by the way, it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. You could just do it for the next month, or you could say, in 2024, I'm going to do it for that year. For some, it's a daily regular practice. I suspect that's a tiny minority of my fellow earthlings, but a lot of us just need to be unblocked because we build it up to be too much. So in support of micro journaling, Greg McCune wrote in his book, Essentialism, quote, for the last 10 years now, I have kept a journal using a counterintuitive yet effective method. It is simply this. I write less than I feel like writing. Typically, when people start to keep a journal, they write pages the first day. And then by the second day, the prospect of writing so much is daunting, and they procrastinate or abandon the exercise. So apply the principle of quotes, less but better to your journal. Restrain yourself from writing more until daily journaling has become a habit, end quote. I call that micro-journaling, writing just a little bit, writing a lot less than you'd think you need to. You know, I was looking over the diary of Ralph Waldo Emerson recently, and it's quite an eye-opener. Emerson, who was such a voluminous writer and thinker in the 19th century, here was his diary entry from January 17th, 1829. You ready? Here goes. My weight is 144 LB period. Yep, that was his journal entry. This is somebody who wrote voluminously, who kept a diary over long periods of time and revisited it many times. And that was like what he wanted to say that day. So these days, I don't think we need some big, handsome, leather-bound book that we write into. Some people appreciate having paper pages. I'm obviously more of an ebook person, but whether you want to do it electronically 
or you want to do it on paper, you can do a lot less than you think, and that's much more likely to lead to good habits and becoming somebody Emersonian. Before we move on to number three, I have to give the classic Oscar Wilde line about diaries. Oscar Wilde once wrote, I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train, end quote. All right, let's go on to mental tip trick or life hack number three. We're going to call this one Dear Me. All right, well, number three is a trick. So we've gone trick, life hack. Let's go back to tricks. This one, as I mentioned, I'm calling Dear Me. I asked at the top of the podcast this week, have you written a letter to yourself recently or or ever? And that's what Dear Me is all about. I'll just phrase it how we did it years ago here at The Motley Fool. We have an annual corporate offsite at The Fool, which, as you might expect of us, we call Palooza. And one year, I said, hey, team, I have this idea. Let's try it. I think this would be fun. I've heard it works in other contexts. And perhaps, dear listener, you have already done this yourself. And I hope it worked as well for you as it did for us. So I said, what if we have all of our employees on the final day of our two-day offsite spend 15 quiet minutes with a pencil and a piece of paper, and they write themselves a letter of what their intentions are, both personally and professionally, over the next 12 months. And that is indeed what we did. We passed out pencils and writing paper, and everybody spent that 15 to 20 minutes writing a letter to their future selves. The key, of course, is that it was a letter and it was going to be to their future self because what we then did is we took their pieces of paper and we put them in envelopes. We wrote their name on those envelopes. We sealed them and then we sat on them for 12 months. And as the co-designer of this, I knew what we were doing, but I'm pretty sure our few hundred employees at the time had well forgotten one year later as we reconvened for a full of Palooza the following year. And we were able to surprise every one of them, well, except, of course, for our new employees in the meantime, by handing them an envelope, an envelope with their name on it. And they started to remember, oh, my gosh, that's right. A year ago, I wrote something to myself. I wonder what I wrote. Some people have memories better than others. I would be somebody with not so good a memory. So I had very little recollection of what I'd written the year before and the laughter and the insights And in some cases, the congratulations or the privately felt shame, the intention to be better versions of ourselves by re-examining whether we had lived true to what we hoped for in that year ahead. I think there was a lot of personal growth and learning. I don't think it was corporate. We didn't make a big point of reading out loud anybody's letter. Anybody could share it with others if they wanted to, and they did. But it was mainly an individual exercise for each of our employees. And I've always thought of it as dear me. And I've suggested this to others and other organizations. I don't know if they've taken me up on it or not. But I waited until this day and this minute to share dear me with you, dear fellow fool, as trick, in this case, number three on the podcast, Dear me, there are different ways you could tweak that exercise. You could make it shorter or longer. You could make it for a certain group of people or with a certain intent. But I think it's really effective. And I think about one year is a good amount of time, not too long that you've forgotten about it or don't don't care about it anymore, but, but not too short, enough remove that it does give you, almost like we as investors, I've often said the very minimum time frame I would ever think in is about one year. 
that's about what this Dear Me exercise was all about. So there it is. Number three, Dear Me. Try it. All right, on to number four. This one is a life hack. I'll be brief on this one because I don't think it has a grand point to make, but I have really appreciated that as someone who keeps a careful calendar, so I know color-coded across 20 different colors, I know what I'm doing tomorrow, next week, I know what I did last year on this very day. I can go back to 2008, which is when I personally adopted Apple into my life. When I switched from PC to Apple 2008, Eight, I began using iCal. I've kept a daily calendar ever since. And what I've done in addition, it's probably the same mindset that leads me to do this, is whenever I've come up with a new thought or an idea, it might be something for this podcast, for example, whatever platform I'm using, I use OmniFocus to track a lot of my tasks. You could use your iCal calendar as well, notes, applications. Whenever I come up with something that I think is important, I don't just write it down. I make a particular point of saying the exact day and the exact time that I had that revelation or insight. A quick recent example, a couple of months ago on this podcast, I did Surprise, Volume 1, Smoke and Mirrors. That was April 19th. It it is a series that's all about stories that have an important element of surprise that help you as an investor, as a business person, or fellow liver of life that that have a surprise ending that make an even stronger point because of that surprise. Anyway, turns out I first had the idea for that podcast at 5.53 p.m. on July 14th, 2022. Now, I went back and checked what was happening in my life that I would have thought that at the moment, and I can't know for sure. What I can say is it's my wedding anniversary every year, so happy anniversary to me again this year, my lovely wife, Margaret and I will have been married 33 years as of later this week, but it was in fact on my anniversary day last year at 5.53 p.m. that I thought, you know, stories that surprise, that should be a podcast series. And it took me about nine months to actually deliver that. But what I've found is when you note the exact timestamp when you come up with things, in many cases, it will help you remember why you came up with that idea at the time, which can be very instructive both for your memory and or for telling a story about why you did this new thing or came up with this new idea. You you remember, if you check your calendar and you keep a careful calendar, you remember exactly where you were and when, and that adds somewhat to the story, the creation story of your new idea or enterprise. So I'm a big fan of coming up with new thoughts and celebrating innovations. And I think if you are too, I highly recommend you exactly timestamp those. Your future self will express appreciation later on that you took the time to do that. It only takes about 30 seconds uh, whenever those eureka moments hit. Anyway, not a big one, but kind of a fun one. Number four, keep a great calendar and then timestamp your thoughts. Well, we've been going trick, life hack, trick, life hack. So If you're following along, you'll see the next one is, of course, a trick, number five. This one's kind of hard to explain. I'm not sure how to title it, but let me just describe what happens in human social groups. In human social groups, we are all taking cues constantly from each other. A lot of behavioral scientists, psychologists know this better than I, but I sometimes read what they write. And so I've definitely come across the concept that in a group of people, We're all kind of, this probably goes back to our chimpanzee days. We're trying to figure out 
Who's the top dog in this group? Who is the king chimp? Let's hope it's not a king chump. Who is the king chimp in this group? And this is just something that lightly I've become aware of over the course of time. People tend to group up. We, For social reasons, we sort of, not everybody can speak all the time or all at once, certainly. And so we might listen to somebody that we all consciously or more often subconsciously think, well, this is sort of the leader. So we will listen to them and be guided by them. It's more efficient for us as social creatures to have people that we admire or are the most popular or the strongest, whatever the context is, speak or kind of lead the group. So this is something that human beings have done for a long time, although it's very subconscious. And what I've noticed is at the stage in life where I am, I will sometimes be in that position I'm especially thinking of business conferences or even cocktail parties in some contexts. At the age of 57, I find sometimes I'm that person. And here's what I've noticed. When people speak, like not me, not me is speaking. When people speak and there's a group of us, where do they look? They'll tend to look at me. Now, not everyone does this. If you start playing this game along with me and become more conscious of this and watch this in the day or week, Ahead, you'll notice that some people are very good at including everyone when they're speaking. In a group of five people, they're telling a story and they're giving equal face time to each of the four people in the social circle around them. They're very good at including everyone, which I think is a strength. Other people I've noticed will tend to just look at one person. I find myself doing this sometimes. I'm telling a story and I'm only looking at one of the people in the group. Probably not just because I think they'll enjoy it, but because I esteem them. I think maybe just subconsciously, again, they're the leader. So I might just be directing my gaze there. And I found that this tends not to include everybody else, which I kind of think is a mistake in life for a number of reasons we won't go into right now. What I'm here to point out is if you find yourself, dear fellow fool, in this position where people are telling a story or Points are being made in a social circumstance. It might just be around the water cooler or after the keynote speech when everybody's out there getting a cup of coffee. You'll notice in some cases that someone's talking and there are four of us group. They're only looking at you the whole time. And here's my trick. I think if you find yourself to be the king or queen chimp in any context and conversation is being directed solely at you. And you've noticed that. A lot of people won't notice this. They, they'll they just think, this person's talking to me. But the truth is, this person is not really looking at anyone else in the room. Here's a gift you can give everybody else in the conversational circle. Make a real point of not looking the speaker in the eye the whole time, or as they make all of their point, intentionally look at others around the circle intentionally. The speaker is not including them, but you are. You're intentionally looking at others. And what you'll find, what I found with this rather subtle social trick I'm giving you here at number five, what I found is if you make a point of directing your gaze at others around the circle and you're not looking at the speaker, guess what the speaker will start to do? The speaker will start to not look at you because you're not giving them your ocular attention, and instead they'll start looking at others. They'll probably be looking at the people that you are looking at. And as a consequence, everybody will be invited with eye contact into the conversation. So number five, it's a trick. It's very social. This doesn't really speak to investing your business too much. This is more about life. But if you find yourself 
with the highest Q rating in the room. If you're the best known or most popular person or the person that people are looking up to in a conversation, avert your gaze as people speak to you and look at others. All right, well, on to my last two, number six and seven. And I don't know, I'm just going to flip-flop them. So let's not go life hack. We're going to go trick and close with a life hack this week. So number six is also a trick. Compete in unionized industries as a conscious capitalist. Just putting that out right there up front. So what I've found in the course of picking stocks and starting a business, and then meeting other entrepreneurs, and then eventually learning about conscious capitalism, which is such an important thing for me. I'm on the National Board of Conscious Capitalism. Uh, The Motley Fool is a consciously capitalistic enterprise. I love conscious capitalism, and yet it's still such a minority approach taken in the business world. The best people I know in business practice capitalism in a new way, consciously, in a way that says, yeah, Capitalism has had some flaws. It's responsible for a lot of abuse outright in some cases or neglect in others. Not everything, not every stock that has gone up created a better world in so doing. But I also know many where that is true, where good people have been doing and are doing good or great work. And those are the stocks I tend to pick. And I've beaten the market for many decades now, largely on the backs of these kinds of people and these kinds of enterprises. So I think you probably already know this about me. If you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, I love conscious capitalism. My trick here is to future entrepreneurs. Now, in industries that are largely unionized, and I'll give a couple of of examples in a sec, but I think a lot of us can name these. And some of you listening to me are in unions today or are in industries that are unionized. I believe that for the most part, that's come about over the course of time because there wasn't trust. Trust was not built. There was, in some cases, abusive or monopolistic behavior on the part of owners. By the way, not everybody's a good guy or bad guy. On either side, there was some bad behavior sometimes by employees, and it led to a failure of trust, which led to, in some industries, commonly, many people to say, I can't trust, yeah, we'll go with the phrase, the man. I can't trust the man here, this industry, business, or my employer. So fellow employees, let's group up together, and there's power in numbers, and we are going to become a union, and we're going to unionize against management. We need to make sure our interests are protected. Now, I acknowledge, in many cases, that was necessary and very helpful. I think a lot of us who study business history will also recognize in many other cases, it's led to some bad behavior on the part of union bosses or other people who are taking their own power as people who lead unions and acting abusively or poorly themselves. So I think it's helpful to have a 360-degree view here, but my actual trick is specifically to think about industries where there is very little trust, where there's a history of antagonistic behavior between unions and management and management and unions, and instead look to create a new business in that industry that is actually operating consciously, that is by definition trying to create wins for everybody, wins for the employees, wins for the shareholders, wins for the environment, for partners and suppliers, the community wins for all. Those who know conscious capitalism know that's at the heart of it. And if you go into industries 
where that is not commonplace, you have a huge advantage if you are hiring within that industry and simply treating people well or better than the other companies treat them. Now, this is played out right in front of all of us. I can give a couple examples right now. Let's go with Tesla first. Now, Tesla will sometimes get bad headlines and Elon Musk can be a target for people. They'll say things like, yeah, Tesla is engaging in abusive behavior with its employees. And I'm not here to say they never have. In fact, any company worth nearly a trillion dollars has probably had some tough trade-offs to make over the years. But for the most part, as Andrew Sorkin on CNBC in 2021, as he was interviewing not Elon Musk in this case, but General Motors CEO Mary Barra, Andrew Sorkin said the following, and I quote, it appears by my math that on average, Tesla employees who are non-unionized, it appears on an hourly basis, they're making more money than unionized workers, for example, at, he said, General Motors. Mary Barra goes on, I think, to unsuccessfully to refute that. Elon himself tweeted after that, this is true. He added, also, Tesla employees get health insurance, stock, and other benefits, end quote. And by the way, the performance of the stock for employees who bought and held their shares over the years has been spectacular. There are so many benefits to working for a company. It's not going to be perfect. No company is, but that is consciously trying to create a better world, a better environment, a, a better product, and a better experience for employees. Not a perfect one, but better than exists at other competitors in that same unionized industry. Now, this works for any industry, by the way. If you can come in and be a conscious capitalist anywhere, good on you, and Motley Fool Ventures might want to back you. Google us. So it's true anywhere, but I think it's especially true targeting industries where people are disaffected. They don't love their employer. They may not respect it. You have such an advantage as an entrepreneur creating businesses within that industry, and your employees probably won't unionize if you're treating them well. For example, Old Dominion Freight Lines, one of my better stock picks over the last 15 years or so, Old Dominion Freight Lines operates as a largely non-unionized, multi-generational family company doing lighter-than-truckload trucking, uh, an incredible logistics company, and they've treated their employees wonderfully relative to the rest of their industry. And that's why Old Dominion Freight Lines has outperformed just about any other trucking company I think you can name on the backs of non-unionized labor that feels invested in and appreciated and has helped create a win-win-win atmosphere. So there it is. Trick number six, compete in unionized industries as a conscious capitalist. I think conscious capitalism is a devastating competitive weapon for anybody starting that business in any industry. And I highly recommend if this phrase, conscious capitalism, is something you haven't come across before, that you Google it, check it out, and learn some. There's a great book called Conscious Capitalism by Raj Sisodia and John Mackey that I would bring to your attention as well, past interviewees on this podcast. So I think Elon Musk gets it. I think Old Dominion Freight Lines gets it. And I think some entrepreneurs listening to me right now in future will demonstrate the benefits of this. And yes, this will lead to not just a better business world, but to a better world. All right. Well, I hope you like that trick. I'm sure some will, will adamantly disagree and I'm willing to listen to that. In fact, we have a wonderful mailbag episode we do at the end of each month. RBI at fool.com is, of course, the email address. I would love to hear your reactions to that particular trick or, frankly, any of my others. 
I highly recommend microjournaling or thinking about that dear me letter or tricking your CFO into reallocating capital. RBI at fool.com. You can tweet us at RBI podcast. Well, number seven is a life hack. This one's a good one to close with this week. It first came to me from my friend, Kim Conte. Kim is a talented businesswoman here in the Washington, D.C. area. She was a member of my Leadership Greater Washington class of 2019. I always like to cite and source where good ideas come from. I probably even timestamped somewhere exactly when Kim said this in my presence. Anyway, here is what she has done to intentionally make a connection between her parents and her kids, between grandparents and grandkids. And it's pretty simple. And maybe, dear listener, you're already doing this. And by the way, if you're already doing this in some interesting or better new way, I would love to hear from you on this this month's mailbag. But this is what Kim described. She's made a real intentional effort to have happen in her family's life, especially around the holidays. But if you have grandparents who are near their grandkids, near your kids on a regular basis, it could be any old time. But for them, it was at a holiday time. They specifically made a point of having Gramps or Grandma or both read a story to the kids. If it's the holidays, let's go with selections from Dickens' Christmas Carol, or maybe Twas the Night Before Christmas, something that they would do not just once, but every year at the same time. And maybe not every year, but but most years. So Kim very intentionally created a bridge between her parents and her kids by having them repeat as a tradition a special moment, a special story. It might be a read story. It might be a told story. And she just knows, and I do too, that years from now, when we're all gone, but our kids are still here, that's what they'll remember. And it didn't come about by happenstance. It came about because of an intentional choice to think about what is a story a message that I would love to convey to that next generation? And can I set up the older people in my kids' lives to have that moment and to have that sharing? You know, I was thinking in my own life, I didn't have a grandparent who necessarily told a story, but I'll always remember when I was five or six years old, my father's father, my grandfather in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we would go up for holiday times and it would be time for supper that night, my grandmother, who had partly prepared it, would be calling everybody in to dinner, and we'd be sitting, maybe we were watching television, and my grandfather was there, and he was briefly dissuading us from listening to our grandmother. He was dissuading us from going to the dinner table because behind the door that he had in the den, he had a supply of gumdrops, specifically the Chuckles brand for those who may know, love, or remember Chuckles gumdrops, those rectangular-shaped gumdrops in a certain color sequence in that Chuckles packaging. And we knew that Pop-Pop was opening up a packet of Chuckles in order to give us each a gumdrop. Dessert first, a gumdrop before we had to go into supper. There was, of course, some chicanery here, a little bit of mischief in our grandparents' eyes. And that's a memory that I will always have something that he repeated. I don't know if that was the intention he made, he meant to make on his grandkids so that years and years later, he died in 1972. I'd be talking about this 51 
years later, but that was a moment. So if you are a parent or a grandparent, life hack, think intentionally about what tradition, story, or ritual you yourself would like to start or set up someone else in the family, get them started to create and extend the family culture that they have cultivated carefully over the course of their lives to ensure it proceeds down through the generations. Thanks again to my friend Kim Conti for that life hack. Have your parents read a special story to your kids at a special time. And before I let you go this week, I should, in the ongoing battle in my household anyway, I don't know about yours, should I Google it or should I chat GPT it? Thinking of the Chuckles brand, I couldn't remember the name of that brand as I prepped for this week's podcast. So I Googled Old Gumdrop USA Candy Brand. I Googled those six words and I skimmed down my Google search and I absolutely could not find in word or image what I was looking for. So I decided, well, I remembered it, it was it was one it was a one word name, but I thought, well, why don't I just try to chat GPT this one? So I wrote, what is an old USA candy brand that put gumdrops in about six to seven different colors, one each, each big and rectangular in a plastic package with a one word brand? And sure enough, ChatGPT answered, the candy brand you are referring to is likely the Chuckles candy brand. Chuckles is an old and well-known candy brand in the United States that produces gumdrop style candies. The candies are rectangular in shape, come in various vibrant colors, and are typically packaged in a plastic wrapper. Chuckles candies are popular for their fruity flavors and nostalgic appeal. Well played, ChatGPT. So yeah, maybe that's a that's a bonus. Number eight, another life hack. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.